Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. Milo's going to be sharing with us. Give her a round of applause. She's going to be sharing with us week seven, Jesus change, stagnant to living. It is all yours. Coming. Probably he's testing it up there. It's kind of echoing a lot. Hi, David. Good? That's better? Yeah. All right. Jesus Encounters, um, it's been a wonderful series. I don't know how many you've been able to catch, but um, it really has been, been good, hasn't it? So th- today is about the woman at the well. And um, the subtitle is From Stagnant to Living. So what I was remembering, um, a story that I had heard, or an article I read, I can't remember, it was a long time ago, um, about a letter to the editor one time. This guy wrote in and he said, you know, I've been going to church for a long time, and I don't remember any of the sermons that anybody ever preached, really. You know, maybe a little thing here or there, but he said, He said, I don't really think it's done me any good to go to church all the time and hear all those sermons. And um, somebody wrote in the following week and and said, um, regarding that, he said, I've been married for over 50 years. He said, my wife cooks for me all the time. He said, I don't remember those meals. I don't remember each individual meal, might remember a few of them, but if I had not eaten them, I would not be alive today. (laughs) So all of these, this series that we're doing, um, I know that there's a nugget in there uh, that is is going to feed you. And while I've been preparing for this, um, I, I have been fed as well. Um, between. And Bruce reminded me this morning, because I was thinking, well, so I've prepared a meal for you. He said to me, and I, rem- I remember him saying this before, he, he said, um, he, he says, remember, you're not the chef, you're just the server. Uh, so, because in our business, that's very appropriate, but... <laughs> So, um, so I am serving what the chef prepared um, that I, f- you know, felt to. Pre- so, we're looking at um, at John um, four um, one through thirty. If you do have your Bibles, and we'll be putting some of the verses up here as we go. And but one thing I wanted to do is um, we have a map. At least we're supposed to have a map. There we are. That's nice. I really liked it. Somebody else did that. They put a map up to show where they were going. I really can't. Um, that one. But uh, <laughs> because these are not just stories. These things happened in a time, in a place, in a context. And 
I, besides, I like maps. But um, so, so you can see that Jesus was, was traveling. He had to go through Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee or back. Most people uh, went off to the east so they didn't have to go through Samaria because they had a lot of discord between them. Um, but he went through. He went right through. Um, but the question is, who were the Samaritans? How come there was this discord between them? And it's, Samaritans is a familiar word because of the story of the Good Samaritan, but the Jews didn't think that the Samaritans were good. Um, they felt that they were, um, they were a mixed breed. They, they had originally been Jewish, but they had been in captivity in this um, Assyrian kingdom for 700 years. Do you know our country's only a little over 200 years old? And they were in captivity for 700 years. That's a long time. Uh, and so there was all this intermarriage. So the Jews despised them because they were, they were pure blood. Um, what the Samaritans did was they had different types of worship. There was still a thread of, of the um, Jewish beliefs in them, but they chose only the bits and pieces of the Bible of the Old Testament um, that they wanted, and they actually rejected most of it, most of the Old Testament. So normally Jewish people avoided traveling through Samaria, um, but uh, like people avoid going through New York City. Do you do that when you're going south? Yeah. Just go right out around there. <laughs> But Jesus was on a mission, um, and he's still on a mission. He's always on a mission, and he's still on, he's still on that mission, uh, the same as he was back then. So in verses 1 through 4, Jesus had left Judea because he learned that the Pharisees were becoming aware that his disciples were baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. So that kind of got a few people in power upset. This also, this area was outside of Herod's jurisdiction, um, and Herod had just imprisoned John the Baptist, so there were some political things that were kicking up at the time. So the story is, um, Jesus is tired from traveling, and he encounters a woman at the well. She's drawing water at Jacob's well. Th you could still uh, see Jacob's well today if you were, if you were over uh, in there. The disciples go into the city to buy some food, and Jesus asks the woman for a drink, which all seems normal to the modern person, but in Bible times and culture, this was very unusual for several reasons. Uh, Jesus had become known as a holy man whose mission was to bring the Jews back to God. Word of him, of him had spread. And Jewish men were not to be alone with the woman, any woman, let alone engage in conversation with a woman, even their own wives they did not speak to when they were in the street, when they were in public. And the women were not allowed at all to speak to the men unless spoken to. So this was a Samaritan woman, and then the, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't mix, and they sometimes fought and killed each other. The Jews burned their uh, temple down at one point. Um, so they especially would not share um, they wouldn't share a vessel because that would make them um, unclean. 
So worse yet, this woman is obviously of bad character and has been ostracized from society. She is getting water at a time when she wouldn't have to run into other women uh, that would be out getting water, and she's using um, Jacob's well, which is far outside of town, so she had to travel for that. Um, and so a thirsty person needed to come equipped to get water from the well, and that's what she was doing. So Jesus crossed a social barrier to speak to a woman, first of all, and then a Samaritan woman at that. And that's, a, that's an example for us. It didn't, he didn't let the social standard of the time uh, stand in his way. His acceptance of outcast sinners, common people, caused him to be rejected by the religious leaders. He identified with the outcasts. And it's like the thing that you're going to do down in, down in Portland. Jesus engages her by asking a question, asking for a favor. He is thirsty, and he asks for her to get him a drink from the well. And he says, give me a drink. It seems that the woman, for all the social proprieties of not speaking to men at all, does answer and even has a bit of an attitude a touch of hardness in her answers to Jesus. And I can really picture the kind of woman. I think she's a little snappy. Um, <laughs> I've waited on her before <laughs> at the restaurant. <laughs> what? You a Jew? Ask me a Samaritan for a drink? She probably sees him as a dusty, thirsty maybe dirty, he's been traveling, walking, Jew. So women were the ones who drew the water from the well, so it wasn't beneath her to get water. However, this request involved them sharing the use of a vessel, which was prohibited. And that could cause a rabbi to be considered unclean. And the Sabbath's always coming up. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you should have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. The Samaritan woman keeps the conversation on a natural level after that. She says, respectfully, with the word sir, but still keeping a little distance. So she kind of sets up a barrier with the way that she talks to him, maybe heckling him a bit, maybe thinking he's a rabbi. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where, then, do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. In the Amplified Version, it, it calls it flowing, bubbling, continually unto eternal life. I like that picture. The woman must have wondered what living water is. Anybody would. Certainly, it's a different concept, but then to never thirst again. The living water speaks to divine activity coming from outside of a man, ensuring an unfailing supply. And that is the new life 
connected with the activity of the spirit. And that's what he's offering her. So a quote from Vincent's word studies of the New Testament. It must not be understood, however, that the reception of the divine life by a believer does away with all further desire. On the contrary, it generates new desires, holy desires. No matter how large or how varied it may become, it will always seek and find its satisfaction in Christ and in Christ only. That's what this holy water is, the new, new living water. The holy desire is where transformation happens, the result of receiving living water. Again, still not understanding, the woman keeps the conversation again, just mean and plain. She doesn't see that Jesus is speaking of a spiritual counterpart to the well, which she used continually. This is where she always got her water. She did not understand the meaning of living water in verse 10, but she wants to know more. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Because the woman was ostracized from society and was made to draw water from the well outside of town, she thought only of her practical needs. Life at that time, if you think before refrigeration and you know modern time, life was basically about meeting your basic needs, safety, um, protection, shelter from weather or shelter from, you know, predators or anything. That's basically what took up all their lives. That was it. So going for water outside of town was a big deal. So she probably struggled for survival in her society um, because she was ostracized. So if she could eliminate all these trips for water, it would make her life a lot easier. Jesus engages her further in conversation by making a request. Offers something she doesn't understand but needs. He then turns the conversation towards showing her his heart for lost souls and her need as a sinner. He reveals that he is the source of living water and points out that her life has been stagnant for a very long time. And once again, Jesus breaks social norms. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. I bet women did not fetch husbands back then. I just have a feeling. Go get your husband. What? Oh, I don't know. I'll ask him if he lets me, you know. <laughs> uh, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. This remark was both a pitiful defense and a truthful confession. She had such a long history of failed marriages, she must have been well-practiced at dodging this topic. At this time, the rabbis allowed two to three divorces at the most, but this woman had certainly exceeded that and was now living in adultery. She was unmarried to her present partner. Her life was stuck in a horrible pattern, stagnant. We don't know what kind of life, what kind of background this woman had, what social issues led to her being in this mess that she'd made of her life. Um, but we probably all have known people that really struggle with relationships, uh, have great difficulty, and just seem to go from one 
bad situation to another bad situation. We've known people like that. Um, so most importantly here, Jesus has spotlighted her need. The woman needed the gift of God, the living water. Her life is stagnant. She needs the living water that changes everything in our lives. It's everything on the inside and everything on the outside. So Jesus said to her, you have said, well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly in 17 and 18. So now something begins to dawn on the woman in her heart and in her mind. Who might this man be? Now he's not just a stranger. He's not this guy that needs a drink, a Jew, a rabbi. He's a prophet, maybe. I think we can all identify with this woman at this moment, those times when the Holy Spirit highlights something that needs attention. Ooh. Confession, forgiveness, we could feel that. Some change. It feels good, hopeful, yet uncomfortable at the same time. And she was made to feel uncomfortable because he knew her dirty laundry. Uh, of her life, but, um, but yet, I think she was hopeful because she thought perhaps he was a prophet. So the general idea of a Messiah at this time was a redeemer or a teacher. The Samaritan name for Messiah was Tahab, meaning he who returns or he who restores. The Samaritans waited for the restore of worship on Gerizim, which is the mountain they worshiped on, not in Jerusalem as the Jews believed. The Jews and the Samaritans were both looking forward to a Messiah. They have some common ground at least. But where did they get this idea, this hope for a Messiah? The prophecy of the Messiah dates back to the writings in Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. God, your God, is going to raise up a prophet for you. God will raise him up from among your kinsmen, a prophet like me. Listen obediently to him. This is what you asked God, your God, for at Horeb on the day you were all gathered at the mountain and said, we can't hear any more from God, our God. We can't stand seeing any more fire. We'll die. And God said to me, they're right. They've spoken the truth. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you among their kinsmen. I'll tell them him what to say, and he will pass on to them everything I commanded him. And anyone who won't listen to my words spoken by him, I will personally hold responsible. So both the Samaritans and the Jews were holding on to this hope that someday there was going to be this Messiah. So although the women back at that time were typically not educated at all, they thought it was a waste of time even to teach him to read, uh, that, and they didn't teach him religion, this woman had gathered some things, uh, information, um, and uh, she believed it. So the woman said to him, Sir, this is 19 and 20, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
So she goes right from saying he's a prophet, and then she's talking about this is my religion and your religion. And so there was a rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans over the proper location for prayers and worship between Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim. Her response, I think, was pretty typical of a person who is presented with the gospel. It touches some uncomfortable spot inside, and they start throwing up stories about churches they don't agree with or hypocrites in the church. How many times have you heard that? Church is full of hypocrites. Yeah, that's why I go there. <laughs> so um, bad experiences maybe they had. Sometimes they'll praise a sainted relative as if one good one satisfies the need for the whole family. Oh, yes, my grandmother was a praying woman. You know, It's good. It's good. It reminded me of a sermon that I heard many years about sacred cows that people set up in their mind. Um, it, it can be something big or small, a style of worship, versions of scripture, design of a building. I remember one church we went to a long time ago, which we remained nameless. It, our elders were arguing over the color of the carpet. And <laughs> I don't know who won. Um, <laughs> You know, how to share communion, what the elements should be. You know, everybody, there's right way and wrong way to do everything. So both the Jews and the Samaritans had their sacred cows. But uh, N.T. Wright, in his um, commentary on John, it's called John for Everyone. It says, there are excuses and they're all irrelevant. God and the church are not the same thing. In fact, part of the point of Jesus' mission to bring the life of heaven to earth was that from now on, holy mountains won't matter that much. And neither does all that other stuff. So sacred cows don't matter. So in verse 21 through 24, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I, I just love this, and with what Jimmy shared about worship this morning, particularly it reminded me of this part. The Father is looking for us to worship, and he's looking for worshipers. He's looking for what we did here today. That's cool, just to worship him. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. That was verse 25. So the Samaritans had a less political concept of the Messiah, um, which made it possible for Jesus to announce himself to the woman without fear of being misunderstood, as he was by the Jews. The Jews were expecting um, an like, earthly leader for, to, from the Messiah. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In verse 26, I am he. Jesus reveals God's love and redeems humanity. This is who he is. At last, she recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, 
the one that both the Jews and the Samaritans are waiting for. Not a dirty traveling man and a Jew at that. Asking for water, not a rabbi, the true Messiah. The woman's stagnant life is now living and flowing with living water. So not only is this in her life, um, but in verses 28 through 30, um, more people came to Jesus. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is, n this is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. And then at the request of the villagers, Jesus stayed on there for two more days. There was a great harvest of souls in Samaria from this encounter. Verses 40 to 41. Many more believed of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. So when they met him, they believed when he said, I am he. Those words were impressed on me over and over and over during the time when I was preparing for, for this, the I am he. I sometimes couldn't say it without breaking. We were out walking one night, and I kept going like this because I kept hearing them in my head. If he is who he said he is, then all of life is not as it appears on the surface. And almost everyone has had those I am he moments, um, everyone here. First at salvation, and then through our lives, we get to know him as redeemer, messiah, provider, healer. We have a spring of living water in the Holy Spirit. This living water is ours, refreshing us continually. And John goes on throughout the, the book of John just explaining in different ways who Jesus is. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He is the door to eternal life. He's the good shepherd. He's our friend that sticks closer than a brother. And in Mark, it's Jesus said, I am, meaning I am God, in the original. Jesus tells us that he's the vine and we are the branches. He is our source. He makes stagnant heart living. Yet he shared in the human condition. He was thirsty. He was human, but he was God also. So my question to wrap up is, who has Jesus been to you um, on different occasions? The best meal that I can serve to you today that the chef prepares <laughs> is to remember and, and jog our memories as to who he is presently and how he is showing up in your life. Uh, in your particular circumstance. Life isn't just the circumstances you're living in. It's where Jesus is interacting with you in that time. 
the first two uh, songs in the worship today were from our life playlist right now, weren't they? So those things of acknowledging where your life and Jesus and the living, living water are intersecting um, will stir your heart to who he can be. He's your source for living. He's our source for living in every situation. So maybe this is a stagnant time for you. We all have them from time to time, and then something, somehow, Jesus pulls us back into the source. Um, but he says to us all the time, I am he. I am he. So, ministry time. I would like you just to remember and think about those things. Think about where, where Jesus um, is intersecting in your life right now. Every